Welcome to the History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to episode 23, O Mississippi, Where Art Thou? Many years ago, a man stood in the middle of a forest. Nearby, a drum pounded, giving off a staccato rhythm that reverberated through the trees. But there, over the sounds of the drum, he could hear them coming. The voices were off in the distance, a great many of them by the sound of things. Very loud with shouts and laughs getting closer and closer. It was a hot, muggy day and the man's jacket clung to him. He had to look his best though, even if he was nervous and covered in sweat. The voices were coming closer and getting more distinct. The man wiped a drop of nervous sweat from his eye. Almost time, he thought. God help me, I hope this goes well. The drum pounded on. He reached down, picked up his black wig, and pulled it on, hoping it was on straight. He straightened his sword belt, making sure it would look nice and shiny in the light of the hot sun. The voices were louder now, right outside of his... He could hear them, and if he ducked down a little bit, could see the people those voices belonged to. Children, mostly, with some adults sprinkled in, too, hopefully keeping order. Good, good. They were all sitting down ready for his big arrival. The man didn't know what they had been told, but they seemed to be ready and eager. The drum gave one more frenzy of sound, then fell silent. The forest sounded so loud without the deep rhythm. The seconds stretched on as the man steadied himself. They were all waiting on him. Showtime, he thought, before ducking down and stepping out into the sun. There was a small but noticeable intake of breath from the assembled crowd, Some small giggles as the children caught sight of him in his clothing. Bright blue jacket, deep black boots, a shiny sword, and a black wig tied at the back with a bright red ribbon. But that was to be expected. With his friends flanking him, the man stood in the front of the group and raised his hands for silence. When the crowd quieted, he straightened his shoulders, slung the raccoon fur he was carrying over his shoulder, and said, Bonjour, my name is René Robert Cavalier, Sieur de la Salle. Who are you and why have you come here? The students, because that was who the children actually were, giggled all the more at the silly accent that I affected for this role. This was the very first time that I would stand in front of a group of students and teach them about a particular Frenchman who may or may not have traveled through that neck of the East Texas Piney Woods. It would not be the last time that I would adopt my version of the Frenchman's accent from Monty Python in the Search for the Holy Grail nor would it be the last time I would don the blue Halloween costume that was really meant to be a costume of George Washington. But it was a memorable moment for so many reasons, chief of which was the dad who pulled out his cell phone and, using the Wikipedia article, was quizzing me on the history of the actual René Robert Cavalier, Sir de la Salle, in the hopes of tripping me up in front of everyone. Fortunately, I had done my research well in the crafting of this character in class, and, in addition to all of that research, had actually read that same Wikipedia article the night before. Since that boiling hot day in early May 2009, many other men from that program took up the wig to teach the kids about this French explorer with a ridiculously long name. I learned so much. Improvisation, camaraderie, teamwork, and never letting them catch you in your bears. I also learned that Cajun French sounds close enough to actual French that that it will fool someone who doesn't speak the language And if you speak a phrase of Cajun French to a group of kids, 
they will believe you can speak actual French, even if you really don't. Anyone who actually speaks French will sit there for a good two minutes trying to figure out what in the world you just said. Like I said, really beneficial if you don't actually speak French, so laissez le bon temps rouler. These and a great many other lessons are ones that I will carry with me for the rest of my life, most likely. So for that, I am grateful to the French explorer who got it all started, René Robert Cavalli, Sir de la Salle. But who was this long-named explorer, and what was he doing in East Texas? To answer those questions, we have to flip on the flux capacitors and TARDIS our way back to the year 1492. For those who don't remember the little rhyme, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Upon his return to Spain with all the goodies and not-so-goodies of the quote-quote Indies, Columbus kick-started an era of discovery and colonization that literally changed the world. Now, quick side note, Columbus did not think the Earth was flat. Virtually no one who was educated at the time did. The idea of a spherical Earth was put out there as early as the 6th century BC by a guy named Pythagoras. You know, the A squared plus B squared equals C squared guy you learned about in high school. Another Greek super genius by the name of Eratosthenes determined the circumference of the Earth way back in 240 BC. He also figured out the degree of the tilt of Earth's axis way back before sophisticated computers and satellites could help him. And also, every other planet in our solar system is spherical, from Mercury all the way out to Uranus and Neptune. So why would ours be any different? Anyway, Columbus wasn't interested in trying to determine if the world was flat or round. As you might remember from history class, he was trying to find a faster and safer way to the East Indies, what we now refer to as Southeast Asia, as well as to India. Travel overland between the markets in Europe and the markets in the East Indies was costly, slow, and dangerous in most places. When the Ottoman Turks overthrew Constantinople in 1453, not only did they finally bring about the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire, but they also effectively closed overland trade through what we now call the Middle East to Christian trade caravans. A few traders managed to make those spices and other goodies available by going around the Middle East, or possibly by smuggling or something, but access to the exotic goods of the East was severely limited. The closing of the Middle East proved to be a problem for the good people of Europe. Not only were they afraid of further Muslim incursions into Europe, as was happening in Spain from North Africa via the Strait of Gibraltar, but they were also denied access to the silks, spices, and other goods that were available for sale from the East Indies. Something had to be done and the plague rats sure weren't helping. In the meantime, the demand for spices rose higher and higher, which translated into higher prices. It's hard to give a completely accurate account for how valuable certain spices became in today's dollars, but here are a few best guesses. A pound of pepper went for two days' wages in 15th century London, a pound of cloves was a good five days' wages, and a pound of saffron would set you back an entire month's wages. So yeah, Lots and lots of money could be made. So Columbus had a real interest in finding another way to get that sweet cinnamon-smelling cash flow. He found a way to head west, thanks to Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. And the rest, as they say, is history, and might be covered in other episodes of this podcast. Now, as we've covered before in other episodes, the Spanish followed up on Christopher Columbus's four journeys to the New World by churning out explorers and entrepreneurs determined to explore all the new places and find all the rumored legendary gold and golden cities 
in the newly claimed Spanish lands. While they were doing that, they also had debates on whether or not the people who were living in the New World at the time of Columbus's arrival were actually people. The answer to that question would in turn factor in to how badly the Spanish were allowed to treat these people as the Spanish took what they wanted in their subjugation of the new land. This went about as well as you could expect. The indigenous peoples of the Americas were treated very poorly and were exploited greatly in the Spanish gold-producing colonial system. So Spain started raking in the gold, and the king and queen of Spain were probably doing Scrooge McDuck-like dives into giant piles of gold in their money bins. The sound of all those graceful duck-like dives tipped the rest of Europe off that they might want to check into this whole colonial thing. New Spain, in what is now modern-day Mexico, had been around since Hernán Cortés conquered the Aztecs in 1521, and it was doing pretty well. England and France finally sent some people over to check things out. In 1607, the English established their first permanent colony with a little town built in Virginia called Jamestown. And the French founded their first permanent colony at Quebec a year later in 1608. We'll leave the English down there in Virginia so that John Smith can paint with all the colors of the wind. For now, we'll stick with the French. During this time of colonization, Spain definitely had the upper hand. Since they were the first European power to establish a firm presence on the new continents, it's not a big surprise that they were able to grow their new world empire pretty quickly. By the 1650s, Spain controlled all of Central America, Mexico, a good number of islands of the Caribbean, Florida, and parts of what is now California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas in the American Southwest. Meanwhile, France in 1650 was mostly confined to the areas around the St. Lawrence River, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. The French were still looking for a fabled Northwest Passage that was supposed to lead through the North American continent out to the Pacific Ocean. Such a passage didn't exist back then, or ever for that matter, and the Panama Canal wasn't around yet. Even if the Panama Canal was around, it would be in Spanish territory. Sailing around Cape Horn in South America was dangerous, long, and also would be going through Spanish and Portuguese territory, which was, again, less than ideal. What to do, what to do. But what's this? A beaver. Hmm. Actually, lots of beavers. Doing all kinds of beaver things, like building dams and gnawing wood. Their fur looks comfy and waterproof. Maybe we could sell them. Ooh, ooh, maybe we could make hats out of them and sell those. Which is exactly what they did. That's right. The fur trade became such a big industry because people back in Europe loved their beaver felt hats. Europeans had hunted the Eurasian beaver almost to extinction, and the demand for more beaver hats and other beaver-related things like Bucky's gas stations almost drove the North American beaver to extinction as well, all in the name of fashion. So the beaver hat trend exploded in Europe, and the French made a living exploring and hunting Oregon State University's mascot. As we said, France had most of their new colonial trading posts up in what is now Canada. But the spirit of adventure and the search for that fabled and fictional Northwest Passage spurred more and more hiking trips toward the interior of North America. Soon the French had built outposts, forts, and fishing fleets all along the St. Lawrence River and the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Like we said, the city of Quebec was founded in 1608, 
by Pierre Dugua and Samuel de Champlain. And I have no idea if I'm saying these French names correctly, so bear with me. French colonists both clashed with and lived among the native Iroquois and other indigenous tribes. The Great Lakes were explored, and French colonists began to stream in from the mother country. Into all this steps one particular Frenchman, René Robert Cavalier, Sieur de la Salle. So who was this guy? Born on November 21, 1643, La Salle was the middle child of Jean Cavalier and Catherine Guest. His father, Jean, was a textile merchant who supplied vestments to all the local churches of Rouen, France. Thanks to those connections, Jean got both of his sons, René Robert, and his older brother, Jean, positions in one of the local churches. La Salle didn't appear to be well-suited for the role, however, and quickly left the Jesuit society he was a part of very soon after his father died in 1666. Rouen, at the time, was heavily involved in the fur trade with the French colonies in New France. Naturally, this is where La Salle headed off to next in 1667 to seek his fortune. A land grant near Montreal in the St. Lawrence River was enough to get him a foothold into the local politics of New France, as well as earn him some money in the process. But the settled life was not for him. Within two years, La Salle sold this plot of land in the hopes of financing an expedition to search for a way through North America in order to get to the Pacific Ocean, and from there, the markets of China where the real money was. Fourteen men, two canoes, and what must have been a head full of dreams later, La Salle set out on his epic quest to find a waterway to China. He then promptly disappears for a year. See, one of the conditions of this expedition was that La Salle had to take with him a group of Sulpician missionaries who were wanting to minister to the indigenous peoples that they were sure to come across. La Salle put up with this condition long enough to start off on the expedition, but ditched the churchmen seemingly at the first opportunity. In an article titled, Tarnished Hero, a La Salle Overview, written for the Southwestern Historical Quarterly, Robert Weddell gives us an important insight into La Salle and his character following this quick desertion. Weddell writes, quote, at the first opportunity, La Salle separated himself from the religious group. His activities until he was next heard from almost a year later remain obscure. Thenceforth, his career is shrouded in deceit and obfuscation. Claims on his behalf rest on falsified documents written by others to serve their own ends, while his own writings were often designed more to mislead than to reveal." End quote. One of those claims was that La Salle had discovered the Ohio River after breaking off from the Sulpicians. Another was a claim that La Salle had actually discovered the Mississippi River before Louis Jolet and Jacques Marquette were able to. However, Mr. Weddell points out, quote, present-day Canadian colonialists tend to reject all La Salle's claims of important discovery, crediting him with nothing more than a wide-ranging and often illegal fur-trading enterprise. End quote. So what was really going on? La Salle, it seems, was intent on making himself seem as important, influential, and intelligent as possible, especially if it meant criticizing someone for doing something wrong, or if it meant that he could gain some small measure of power. In some areas, he seems to have a good head on his shoulders for his ability to seemingly summon at-will financial and governmental support for his ventures, as demonstrated by an almost monopoly on this fur trading that came through Fort Frontenac in the early 1670s. 
but it seems he was not above lying about his accomplishments in order to get what he wanted. One of the negative things working against LaSalle was his penchant for really upsetting the people he stepped on to get to the top of the ladder of success. Rumors began to swirl that he might be insane, even. People didn't like him, which meant that they tried to kill him. LaSalle would be the subject of five assassinations attempt and would survive four of them. The first attempt happened at Fort Frontenac when a servant put hemlock, a highly poisonous plant, and verdigris, a type of green pigment, into LaSalle's salad. Fortunately for LaSalle himself and our story, LaSalle rolled a natural 20 on his constitution saving throw and survived the first attempt on his life. After recovering from that first failed assassination attempt, LaSalle continued to gather the equipment he would need for another expedition to find the Mississippi River. The Mississippi, for those who forgot their geography, is the largest river system in North America. With all the tributaries that feed into the mighty Mississippi, the river system covers about an eighth of the continent before emptying out into the Gulf of Mexico. It is a massive waterway, and more important for French interests, it is a warm water system, meaning goods flowing out of the continent toward France could do so year-round. The St. Lawrence River lies farther north and is prone to freezing, severely limiting the amount of goods going out and supplies coming back in. Whoever controlled the river could, in theory, control the trade flow from New France to Old France, which would in turn make that person very wealthy. LaSalle wanted to be that person very much. The quest for the Mississippi River would not go well for the Frenchmen. Problems abounded all around, some the fault of the people around LaSalle, and some the fault of LaSalle himself. Desertions, almost mutinies, and a lot of bad blood characterize this endeavor, including two more attempts on LaSalle's life. In one case, a soldier raised his gun to shoot LaSalle in the back, but was stopped by another man. The next assassination attempt involved putting poison in LaSalle's stew, which was thwarted by LaSalle's high constitution score. Backbiting amongst the French continued with LaSalle's detractors seeking to do anything they could to make his life miserable. In 1680, mutineers attempted to kill LaSalle as they were trying to take control of Fort Crevecourt, that LaSalle had built as a launching point toward the Mississippi River. LaSalle and those loyal to him fought back. Undaunted, LaSalle pushed on. Forming alliances with the local indigenous tribes in order to stave off any attacks, LaSalle began gathering more supplies. Two years later, in 1682, LaSalle would finally be successful in getting to the mouth of the Illinois River, and from there his final goal was in reach. Twenty-three Frenchmen, and 31 Mohegan and Abnaki tribesmen made their slow way down the Mississippi River in canoes. To help them in their journey, they had a compass and an astrolabe. The astrolabe was an instrument normally used to help figure out the user's longitude using the stars. The problem with the one LaSalle and his crew carried was that it didn't work. Also, their compass was broken. And because of course it would, the sun spent most of its time hiding behind clouds and fog. The Mississippi River is also a very curvy river, swishing back and forth on its muddy way down to the Gulf of Mexico. It's safe to say that for much of his trek, LaSalle probably had no idea where exactly he was. Still, by some miracle, in April 1682, LaSalle would claim all the land drained by the Mississippi River for the French crown. In honor of the Sun King, King Louis XIV, 
La Salle named this newly claimed land La Louisiane, or Louisiana. This land claim was massive. In today's terms, the Mississippi River flows south from Lake Itasca in Clearwater County in northern Minnesota, over 2,300 miles south down to its mouth in Pilottown in Plaquemine Parish in southern Louisiana. It passes through or forms the borders of 10 states in the U.S. and has a drainage area of essentially everything between the Rockies in the west to the Appalachians in the east. Here's what Mark Twain had to say about the river valley in his work, Life on the Mississippi. Quote, The Mississippi Valley is as reposeful as a dreamland. Nothing worldly about it. Nothing to hang a fret or a worry upon. End quote. While this is true for Mr. Twain, there were plenty of people who would have been fretting about the presence of the French on the Mississippi River in 1682. And that would be the Spanish. As we've mentioned before, the Spanish claim to the lands of North America went all the way back to Christopher Columbus and was further strengthened by the conquering of the indigenous peoples in Mexico in the 1500s. Having a French presence at essentially the back door of their New World Empire that would potentially separate New Spain from Spanish Florida was not a development that the Spanish crown would take lightly. But because this was the 1680s, LaSalle couldn't post anything on his Twitter account to spread the word about what he was up to. For now, the Spanish had no idea that the French were that close to their territory. After claiming all this land, La Salle made his way back to France to tell King Louis XIV the good news and to tell the king of an awesome idea that he had. He went to the Sun King with a plan to take it to the Spanish by invading New Spain. To help with that goal, the French would need to create a colony on the Mississippi River that La Salle had just claimed for France. This would allow the French to consolidate their strength, control traffic up and down the Mississippi, and would provide New France with that sweet, warm-water port that they had wanted for the longest time. La Salle asked the king for men, soldiers, and supplies to establish this new Gulf Coast colony. His wishes were granted in the summer of 1684, and preparations began in the port city of La Rochelle. The French Royal Navy would provide two ships for the expedition, the Belle and the Jolet. These two ships were joined by the Amable and the Saint-Francois, July 24, 1684, saw the departure of the four ships with all the cargo and the almost 200 colonists, priests, tradesmen, soldiers, and women who would work to establish the French presence in the Gulf of Mexico. Things were bad almost from the start. Sabotage was suspected when the Jolet immediately had to return to the port due to an accidentally-slash-intentionally broken bowsprit. Now, I'm no mariner, but a quick internet search shows that the bowsprit is a piece of the ship that is essential to the ship's ability to navigate and to sail at all. To me, the idea that this happened to the Jolet of the French Royal Navy, and not one of the other ships, lends some credence to the idea that someone didn't want LaSalle to succeed, and then tampered with one of his ships. Whatever the reason, the Jolet was soon repaired and the voyage resumed. LaSalle managed to anger and annoy the Jolet's captain, a man named Vaujou, almost immediately. Then the small flotilla was separated by strong winds, forcing each to sail on to the New World alone and vulnerable. Three of the ships arrived in port at Haiti by October 1st. The Saint-Francois failed to make it, having been captured by Spanish ships en route to Haiti. 
bad news continued to come. Lasalle himself became ill with what we are told were attacks of delirium and paranoia. Maybe the pressure of leading such an important expedition got to him, or maybe the tension of avoiding Spanish patrols, or possibly the loss of the St. Francois made him think he would be blamed and held responsible by the king. No one knows for sure what was going on, but Lasalle eventually recovered. Preparations for the jump from Haiti to the continent itself continued, although the bad news wouldn't stop coming. Already, some of the men deserted, and some died, and some returned to France. All told, the expedition was down about 30 men. Some recruits were picked up from the local ruffians and some of the English and German pirates that were apparently bored and needed something to do. Finally, it seemed like everything was ready, and on November 25, 1684, the three remaining ships set sail from Haiti. They would not reach their true destination, the mighty Mississippi River. Someone forgot to leave all their misfortune behind, however. By December 18th, they were far to the west of the mouth of the Big M, and then, to make matters worse, the three ships became separated on January 2nd, 1685. On January 19th, after almost two most likely harrowing and nerve-wracking weeks, the three ships were able to catch sight of one another again. Remember, this was a dangerous undertaking. If they were caught by the Spanish, things would not go well for them. Capture would be the kindest thing they could expect, but execution wasn't out of the picture entirely either. The lingering threat of Spanish capture, though, was only one of their problems. When they finally sat down on land, the French colonists were on Matagorda Island in present-day Texas. Instead of reaching the Mississippi River, they were far, far off course. Google Maps tells me that the distance from Port O'Connor, Texas, which lies on the western side of Matagorda Bay, to the town of Boothville, Venice, Louisiana, which is the farthest down I could go and still be on the Mississippi River, is around 570-ish miles. If you travel on Interstate 10 and presumably don't stop for some coffee and beignets at Café du Monde in New Orleans, the trip should take around 9 hours of driving. That's rough today, even if the traffic isn't bad. For our French colonists, it must have been heartbreaking. The bad times certainly didn't ease up either. Those soldiers who were disembarked on Matagorda Island were then marooned on the island with no supplies for a few days, thanks to heavy waves that made any efforts to try to return to the big ships deadly. Being on the ships probably wouldn't have been much better, though, as the crashing waves threatened to ram the ships onto the beach. After much arguing, the stranded soldiers were ordered to march overland to where LaSalle thought the mouth of the Mississippi lay. In reality, the soldiers were marching toward Galveston Bay, still hundreds of miles away from the actual Mississippi River, and where it empties into the Gulf. LaSalle and his company were very, very lost, but didn't realize just how lost they were. The soldiers made camp at a place they called Grand Camp, located near Pascavallo, on the eastern end of Matagorda Island. While this happened, LaSalle and the ship captains tried to determine a way into Matagorda Bay. The soundings were all over the place, depending on who performed them. LaSalle found the depth of the water to be very good in one place, while ship captains Beaujou and Minet encountered depths half as deep as the ones LaSalle found. No one could agree on anything, it seems. Robert Weddle puts it this way, saying, quote, 
where LaSalle claimed depth of 16 to 18 feet in the channel, Beaujeu and Minet found 8 to 9 feet, whereas the difference may reflect the continuing LaSalle-Beaujeu controversy it also focuses on the fundamental difference in the two men. Beaujeu urged caution. LaSalle sought to force circumstances rather than face reality. End quote. On February 18, 1685, the bell crossed safely over the submerged sandbars at the entrance to the bay. The amiable, however, was not so lucky as the ship ran aground and started to sink. The surviving colonists raced to the ship to try to salvage anything and everything they could. Time was against them as the ship was visibly sinking into the sand and coming apart. While the ship was going down, something else happened simultaneously that would have disastrous consequences. Native Karankawas from a nearby village appeared and helped themselves to some of the ship's stores. Some blankets from Normandy were taken as well. The French regarded this action as theft, and LaSalle sent some men to retrieve their property, or at the very least, to get something in trade in return. The men were led by LaSalle's nephew, a man named Crevel de Moringuet. Moringuet and company invaded the Karankawa village with guns drawn and proceeded to ransack the village when the Karankawa fled the scene. Moringuet and his men recovered the Normandy blankets, but also helped themselves to animal skins and two canoes before heading back to Grand Camp. I'll let Robert Weddell tell us what happened next. Quote, Unaccustomed to the cumbersome native craft, the men tired quickly. Moringent and several others, in the second round of bad judgment, secured the canoes, made camp for the night, and laid down to sleep by a warm fire. They awoke to a piercing cry as arrows rained upon them. Two men were killed, Moringent and another seriously wounded. The Indians fled when fired upon, but this was the beginning of an enmity that would not die until the French were removed from their land. End quote. So let's do a quick recap. LaSalle's expedition left France with four ships bound for the New World via Haiti. On the way, one of the ships, the Saint Francois, gets captured by Spanish pirates. In Haiti, desertions and death dwindle the numbers of colonists still on the trip. They reach what they think is the Mississippi River, but are actually hundreds of miles too far west. Their supply ship, Amable, sinks trying to get into a safer harbor. And now the French have just majorly angered their new indigenous neighbors over a couple of blankets. Things just keep getting worse and worse. And what's this? The Jolet is leaving. Having fulfilled its mission of getting LaSalle to somewhere nearby his destination, the Jolet is heading back to France to rejoin the French Navy. So now LaSalle and friends have only the bell to support them as they try to struggle out an existence in the unforgiving territory. Men were put to work gathering the pieces of the amiable that washed up on shore. In the middle of dealing with that, plus punishing deserters, LaSalle decided that their island camp was far too exposed to be adequately defended and felt the need to move the colony inland. A suitable site was found near what is today Garcitas Creek, in Victoria County, Texas. The site became known to history as Fort St. Louis, though the colonists that lived there most likely called it pathetic. There were no defensive structures of any kind, merely eight cannon that, naturally, had no cannonballs. Fortunately, there was plenty of fish and animals and lots of deep soil for planting and a spring of fresh water. So they had got that going for them, at least. Logs for shelter, though, were too far away to be conveniently at hand, 
so the men had to drag them at least three miles to the building sites. Henry Jotel, the official historian for the trip, claims, quote, I can testify that this work caused the death of more than 30 people, as much from the punishment they received as from the affliction. End quote. According to LaSalle himself, half of the people who were with him when he arrived on the Texas coast were dead within six months. LaSalle placed the blame on the men who were dying, however, by claiming they drank contaminated water or ate native fruit. The French found out the hard way that you must burn the thorns off of the ubiquitous prickly pear fruit before you eat it. No matter what, things were steadily going from bad to worse for the colonists. Despite all of this, LaSalle still believed that the Mississippi River was out there somewhere to the east, and more importantly, close by. If he could just find it, then all their problems would be solved. What happened next, though, doomed the colony. LaSalle ordered the bell loaded with supplies that were desperately needed by the colonists at the little, not quite a fort, Fort St. Louis, and left on his own little series of mini expeditions. His main goal here was to find the ever-elusive Mississippi River, but also to determine the Spanish presence in the area. He left the bell in Matagorda Bay with a small, inexperienced crew and hiked around the area for two months searching in vain. When he finally returned to where he left it, the bell was nowhere to be seen. Like the Amable, it had sunk beneath the waves due to rough seas, high winds, inexperienced crew, and damage the ship had sustained previously. The loss of the bell left the French stranded in Texas and would in time doom the colony. In April 1686, LaSalle chose 20 men to head overland with him to the more fort-like Fort St. Louis in the Illinois area of New France to get help. Six months later, in October 1686, LaSalle returned to the Texas coast empty-handed. Only eight of the men returned with him. The other 12 either deserted and lived with the indigenous peoples of East Texas, or were never seen or heard from again. Undaunted, unwilling to accept defeat, or perhaps just suicidally stubborn, LaSalle tried again in January 1887. He took 17 men with him and left the remaining 23 colonists behind. LaSalle and his 17 men took five horses obtained during the previous wilderness trek and headed east. Henry Jotel, the camp historian, says, quote, Although we had the horses, we were obliged to carry our own little bundles, for Monsieur de La Salle had brought his whole wardrobe and his papers. Monsieur Cavalier, La Salle's brother, a number of church ornaments, even to a dozen vestments, as well as his belongings and food. End quote. That's right. La Salle and his brother brought their whole closet with them for an extended hiking trip. Here's Robert Weddle's description. Quote, Soaking rains compounded the misery. The men, in shoes fashioned from rawhide, had to walk ahead and clear a path wide enough for the horses to pass with their packs. Days were spent slaughtering bison. The hides added to the horses' burdens until they could carry no more. When a horse was injured, the pack was left. After half a day's march, another horse was sent back for it. Tempers grew short among the marchers. Small wonder it took only a petty argument in a hunting camp to touch off the violence. End quote. Tensions had been running high among the men for quite some time. 
Even though the men had encountered and received aid from the local Senese people, it was still a difficult journey. Then on March 18, 1687, something happened. Here's Henry Jotel again. Quote, That evening, when we were talking about what would have happened to those who had left, it seemed that LaSalle had a premonition of what was to happen. He asked me if I had heard of the men contriving something among themselves or if I had noticed that they had some evil plot. I said that I had not heard anything except in certain encounters when they had complained. Argumentative as they often were, I knew nothing else. Furthermore, as they were convinced that I would defend his interests, they would not have told me if they had some wicked design. The rest of the evening was passed in much disquiet. End quote. The next morning, March 19, 1687, LaSalle left their camp among the Sinise to try to find some of his missing men who were long overdue to return from a hunting trip. Jotel stayed at their camp to guard the supplies they had. LaSalle, a native guide and a friar by the name of Father Anastase, departed that morning. They were looking for six men, Pierre Duhout, a man named Leotot, who was a surgeon, a man named Himes, a man named Tessier, who was the former captain of the bell, a man named Moringer, and a man named L'Archevec. Here's what Henry Jotel says happened next. Oh, and when he says eagles, he probably means vultures or buzzards. Quote, Now this is how Father Anastase recounted to me the assassination of LaSalle. As I mentioned, the two of them, LaSalle and Anastase, had left with an Indian as a guide. When they came near the place without seeing anyone, LaSalle was troubled when he saw a large flock of eagles in the air. This sight caused him to believe that those he was seeking were not far away. He then fired a shot so that, if they were nearby, they could hear it and respond. That assured his misfortune because the shot warned the assassins who prepared themselves. End quote. Jotel then continues, quote, LaSalle saw first the Archevec, who appeared a little farther on, and inquired where Moringer was. The Archevec replied that he had drifted away. Then a shot was fired by Duhout, who was close by, hidden in the deep grass. The shot hit LaSalle in the head. He fell dead in place without uttering a word. End quote. Father Anastase, who had been walking with LaSalle up to this point, was understandably terrified. Fortunately for him, the assassins weren't interested in murdering a man of the church. They assured the friar that they had no intention of killing him, and, in fact, the killing of LaSalle was only due to the stroke of despair that they immediately regretted. The friar most likely didn't believe them at all, given what happened next. From Jotel again. Quote, when the assassins were gathered, they plundered the body of Sir de la Salle as a final cruelty, stripping him of even his shirt. The surgeon particularly treated him with derision, naked as he was, calling him Great Pasha. After despoiling him, they dragged his body into the brush, where they left it to the discretion of wolves and other wild animals. End quote. The assassins would meet their end later as tempers continued to flare. Henri Jotel, Father Anastase, Abbe Cavalier, La Salle's brother, and three others would eventually make it back to French territory. The colonists left behind in the not-quite-a-fort Fort, Fort St. Louis near Matagorda Bay 
would be gone the following year in 1688. Karankawa-speaking peoples attacked and killed the 20 remaining adults and took five children captive. So what do we make of all this? Well, with the destruction of Fort St. Louis, the French presence that was supposed to divide Spanish Florida from New Spain never really materialized. On a happier note, though, the French claim is considered one of the six flags over Texas. That French claim to the Mississippi River Basin slash Louisiana Territory flip-flopped between Britain, France, and Spain until it was finally and famously sold to the new upstart country of the United States by the French dictator Napoleon Bonaparte in 1803. Of La Salle himself, opinions are mixed. E.W. Cole, in his article entitled La Salle in Texas, calls La Salle, quote, the outstanding French explorer, end quote. Robert Weddle, who I have been quoting in this episode, states that it, quote, cannot be denied that La Salle died a failure, end quote. La Salle's failure to adequately prepare for his expedition, to provide for the ones he left behind, to accept and get along with his ship's captains, and to prioritize for the basic needs of the people in his charge certainly leaves a lot to be desired from the Frenchman. However, Mr. Weddle also states, quote, Even so, the results of his final undertaking are everlasting. In historical perspective, they are seen in the impetus he gave to Spanish exploration and settlement of the Gulf region, and in the ambitions of France to take advantage of his discovery with settlement of the Mississippi Valley. Indeed, La Salle left an indelible mark upon the North American continent and its future course. In that regard, at least, he must be allowed a measure of greatness. End quote. One more side note. In 1995, the Texas Historical Commission was able to locate and excavate the remains of the bell from the murky waters of Matagorda Bay. Using GPS, magnetometers, and detailed records from the archives in Paris, the divers were able to preserve and categorize the shipwreck as well as the many artifacts still present. The hull of the bell and many artifacts are on display at the Bullock Texas State History Museum in Austin, Texas. And that's where we'll leave the story and legacy of René Robert Cavalier sur de la Salle. Special shout out to the men who, like me, took up the wig over all these years to tell a little bit of La Salle's story. Special shout out to you, dear listener, for sticking with this podcast after a long hiatus. There's a blog post at www.historyontheside.com for more information as to the why of that hiatus if you want to check it out. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or declarations of independence or claims to river basins, you can send them my way by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, through Facebook or Instagram by searching History on the Side, or by checking out www.historyontheside.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on the next episode of the History on the Side podcast. Mm-hmm.